0: Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host Yi An Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Koolabar Capital.
1: And Yingers is joined, as always, by Chris Joy. Uh, I'm a Portfolio Manager, also at Koolabar Capital.
0: And this episode today is a coronavirus special. Chris, do you want to start off with what is happening in markets right now?
1: Yeah, sure, Ying is. Uh, It's certainly been very, very volatile. Uh, We've seen GFC style fluctuations in some markets, and starting with February, uh, the equity market was absolutely hammered. Aussie shares were down about 8.2%, but off about 10% from their peaks in February, and we saw US equities down about 13% at one point. Juxtaposed against that, we had a big drop in government bond yields or risk-free rates, and so therefore any strategies that were long duration profited from that. Uh, we run a long duration active composite bond strategy and that was actually up 0.7% in February and that carries about uh, six years of interest rate duration. That product is an in only product so it's not available to retail investors and those um, returns are pre-fees. The fee terms are confidential. Uh, Within the ASX market, another sector we focus on is uh, the hybrid market, and we saw hybrid spreads, so the spread they pay above bank bills or cash-like instruments jump quite dramatically in February. So for a five-year major bank hybrid, spreads increased from about 280 basis points over bank bills to as wide as. 367 basis points over bank bills. Uh, notwithstanding that the performance was actually very resilient compared to shares. So whilst shares were down about 8.2% in the month, the ASX hybrid market only fell in price terms about 1.7%. We actually do run a um, product that focuses on hybrids. uh, That's the BetaShares Active Hybrid ETF product and net fees that outperformed the ASX hybrid market in February by about 30 basis points. Uh, since February, we've seen a continuation of the extreme volatility. So on Friday night, we're recording this over the weekend. So uh, on the 8th of March specifically, and we saw US equity volatility jump to the highest levels seen since 2009, the VIX index hit 54. And it's actually been the biggest three-week spike in U.S. equity volatility that has ever been recorded. We also saw in the Friday night sessions multiple so-called circuit breaker halts in the U.S. Treasury futures market. So this is the U.S. government bond derivative market as basically the bond futures went offerless. Um, that is to say, nobody was willing to take the other side of that trade. Uh, that is sell bonds. Uh, Everyone wanted to buy bonds in another sign of uh, some nascent market failure. We had on Friday the largest single day jump in the US ultra long bond futures contract that had ever been recorded. So prices are increasing and yields are falling. And the average of the global 10-year sovereign bond yields fell below 1% for the first time ever. So Ying is, yeah, incredibly turbulent times that will hopefully be opportunities for those that are patient and have, I guess, clarity of mind and can sift through uh, the noise to find the underlying signals.
0: And this is obviously all in relation to market sentiment around the coronavirus. Chris, do you want to further elaborate on the market impact of this?
1: Yeah, sure Ying is. The inherently unknowable nature of the coronavirus or COVID-19 is creating widespread global market failure as demonstrated by the disorderly drop in both US and Aussie equity values. This has brought the total equity correction to date to about 14% and you'd have to say there's much more downside lying in wait as the news flow is bound to remain negative. At the same time, we have seen the primary new issue bond market starting to shutter, uh, which will make it increasingly difficult for global businesses, that is companies, to refinance their debts. The one safe haven is arguably the large global banks, which can tap both government-guaranteed deposits and unlimited central bank liquidity. This is really a classic case, I reckon, of market failure flowing from extreme information asymmetries, and the economist Ken Arrow won the Nobel Prize in Economics for showing that imperfect information can give rise to market closures or severe illiquidity as participants are forced to make the worst possible assumptions about the payoffs that they face when trading securities, given their inability to properly judge them. We saw a great deal of this happening during the GFC when liquidity evaporated as participants refused to trade because they did not understand the risks they faced and could not therefore price them. And this ultimately led to central banks stepping in and restoring order. Here at Coolabar we've internally built data science systems that track infection and mortality rates across the world in real time with 15 minute updates. So I actually have literally a graphical user interface that I'm looking at right now where I can see the spread of the disease and the impact of the disease live across any country of my choosing. A crucial test uh, for us in late February in trying to determine the severity of the, the virus-induced crisis was whether the three additional outbreak countries, namely South Korea, Italy, and Iran, could emulate China's alleged success in containing the disease. And on the basis of the information available to us, it appeared in late February that they had failed and that the epidemic was becoming a global pandemic as the US uh, CDC and our own Prime Minister, ScoMo, had hinted. The exponential growth in global infections outside of China driven by Korea and Italy, lent weight to that hypothesis. And the worry was of course that underreporting or the inability to detect infections meant that the true global rate at which the disease was spreading was likely to have been materially underestimated. The one case study we do have some confidence is in South Korea because they've been very vigilant in seeking to test for infections and they've been very good at publicly disseminating that data. So Korea has currently recorded 7,134 cases with only 46 deaths. And that importantly implies a case fatality rate of 0.65%. Now that's much lower than the global ex-China CFR of 2%, but it is very much in line with the empirical experience recorded within mainland China outside of Hubei, where they have found a CFR of 0.85%. So that suggests that virus is much more deadly than the common flu, but not nearly as dangerous as SARS or MERS, which had fatality rates of 9.6% and 34% respectively. The comparison with the flu's estimated fatality rate of 0.1% is not, however, fair because we obviously have flu drugs. And it is entirely possible that the coronavirus's fatality rate eventually converges back to more flu-like CFRs once we have effective antiviral drugs. And we know that Gilead Sciences has developed an antiviral drug that looks to be quite effective. They are running final human trials in China, randomized, large-scale trials with thousands of participants, and we're hoping to get the results potentially some early results in March and the final results by late April. So it's not inconceivable that we'll have a drug that combat the disease in the next few months. Uh, That drug is effective against other coronaviruses like SARS and MERS, and crucially, it stops the virus replicating and is believed to be highly effective if it's taken within the first 14 days of infection. I think it's also important to note that the South Korean trajectory in CFRs, so the circa 0.7% fatality rate, implies that there's much more serious outbreaks in Italy and Iran than they are officially reporting given their claimed fatality rates of 4% and 2.5% respectively. We also see this within China. So the CFRs in Hubei, I can tell you, Ying is right now, are crazy high. So they're at 4.4%. Um, whereas outside of Hubei, as I mentioned, it's around 0.8%. I suspect that's a function of massive underreporting. Obviously, if you've only got mild symptoms and about 81% of all people only have mild uh, effects, you may not even go see a doctor. And so therefore, we're not picking up uh, those infection rates. So we have a huge problem with the denominator in measuring uh, the fatality rate. And our central case is that once we get an effective antiviral drug, we'll see the fatality rate drop below uh, 0.5%.
0: And another problem is that the policy of containment, which is currently the only viable political option, effectively throws the economic baby out with the bathwater, crushing economic growth in the interim. This is being compounded by the so-called financial accelerator and market failure, which is amplifying fear and anxiety and limiting access to credit and exacerbating the real economy impacts. That sounds like an awful lot of very bad news. Are there any good mitigants, Chris?
1: Yeah, there's some uh, good news. I think, firstly, we know that there are more than 20 vaccines that are currently being worked on. And I think there's a reasonable basis to believe that we'll have an effective vaccine uh, within 12 months. Human trials on vaccines have already begun. As I mentioned before, secondly, there's likely to be an effective antiviral drug. I believe, within the next uh, four to six months. And then finally, there is evidence that the virus struggles to spread in warmer climates with just a few cases in South America, Africa and Southeast Asia. And we also have, I think, clear evidence of containment in countries like Singapore and Hong Kong and Thailand. So there is hope that as with the flu, uh, the coronavirus will fade during the Northern Hemisphere's summer season, but I don't think we can bank on that. It does mean though that for the next three to six months, global central banks and treasuries will have to provide markets with a liquidity ladder to ensure they remain open and functioning and do not shut up in a manner that would send the global economy into a bit of a a doom loop. We are definitely gonna have, um, I think, a, a technical global recession with two quarters of negative GDP growth but equally, I think there are reasonable prospects of a pretty sharp uh, rebound following that retrenchment. From a policy perspective, we have felt for several weeks that this will mean rapid rate cuts to support growth, coupled with more extensive liquidity and asset purchase operations from the central banks, that is, um, so-called quantitative easing or QE. And if ever there was a case for temporary QE to help markets bridge extreme information uncertainties until uh, vaccine and antiviral remedies are available, this is clearly it. Don't you think you
0: Indeed, Chris. This really is an unprecedented battle for the ages, and the modern masters of the universe, the central bankers, have suddenly gone to war against an enemy they never expected to face. Um, that is an uncompromising global pathogen that has already claimed the lives of you know more than three thousand four hundred innocents. So, when in late Feb we predicted that the RBA would cut rates. The probability of doing it in March was just 15% according to the interest rate futures market, and by the day after we published our forecast, that had leapt to a near certain 94%. A parallel projection was that the RBA's North Atlantic peers uh, would be similarly aggressive in promptly slashing their own policy rates. Only a few hours later, the chairman of the US Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, signaled he would do exactly that. As you noted, two critical insights emerged during late Feb. Based on the infection trajectory observed in Italy and Korea, it became clear that the virus was morphing into a global pandemic. The second insight was that equity and debt markets were shuddering because investors were struggling to price or handicap the unknowable universe of risk inherent in a deadly pandemic, that is, the ability to paralyze global economic activity. And we've argued that the only tractable solution was for central banks and treasuries to hastily move to build this liquidity and stimulus bridge between the present day and that future juncture when vaccines and antiviral drugs are widely available, as you mentioned before. Given the speed with which markets were freezing, policymakers needed to err on the side of generosity with their monetary and fiscal stimulus knowing that it can be objectively withdrawn once the crisis had passed. A key focus has to be on liquidity operations and quantitative easing more specifically, which is needed much more right now than outright cash rate cuts. When we pitched this hypothesis to the top economists at three different banks in late Feb, all dismissed it as impossible – The RBA had supposedly invested too much time into its previous narrative that no additional cuts were required. And it actually says a tremendous amount about the mental agility of the RBA and its outstanding board that they were able to swing 180 degrees to lead the world with a 25 basis point cut last week. It was one of Phil Lowe's finest hours, accented by the gushing praise in a tweet from America's president, the one and only Donald Trump, Lowe's statement on the day uh, the RBA cut was measured, and a striking contrast to Jay Powell's bumbling press conference, which really nukes the immediate benefits of the Fed's own emergency 50 basis points rate cut days later. Whereas Lowe made it clear that the RBA would support the air pocket in growth created by the virus and guarantee the liquidity of the financial system by acting as a lender of last resort, the Fed's Powell managed to crater his own equities market. Shares in the US had jumped more than 5% in anticipation of Fed action. One hour after the Fed delivered on its signal, they remained in the black. Yet when Powell addressed the dais, he bizarrely blathered about the limits of monetary policy and how it could not help broken supply chains, and claimed the Fed had not considered QE. It was little surprise that the US equity market then promptly went into freefall, dropping more than 3 percentage points.
1: Yeah, that's right, Ying is. Powell explained that the objective of the Fed's cut was to, quote, ease financial conditions. And within the Fed's so-called financial conditions index, this means reducing credit spreads and borrowing rates and boosting equities. And yet he achieved exactly the opposite with those verbal remarks you referred to. What a dunderhead. It is comforting knowing that in times of extreme market stress, Australia is served by world-class policymakers and regulators like Phil Lowe, his exceptional uh, Deputy Governor Guy DeBell, and the head of our banking regulator APRA, Wayne Byers, who has furnished Australia with the best capitalised banks on earth. And I think a round of applause also has to go to the PM, Scott Morrison, and the treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. Uh, Morrison has definitely been on the front foot, personally handling Fortress Australia's battle against the pathogen. And in contrast to the bushfires, there hasn't really been any confusion around jurisdictional responsibilities between the states and the feds. On the weekend before the RBA cut, the PM, the Treasurer, the RBA, and APRA were all working as a unified team to understand the magnitude of the crisis, which had the makings of GFC Mark II and the appropriate policy responses to it. Morrison and Frydenberg both personally told the big bank bosses in no uncertain terms that they too would be expected to step up to the plate and join Team Australia, which they commendably did. In its internal modeling, the RBA had estimated that the major banks could only pass on 20 basis points of its 25-bip cut uh, without actually losing money. So the RBA was thinking a fair result would have been a 15 basis point cut. And yet the big banks all immediately announced full pass-through of the RBA's 25-point cut, which was a surprise even to Martin Place. And I wrote that the PM had told a confidant that, quote, I didn't miss with the banks. They knew I wasn't bluffing. As Treasurer, Morrison has been the architect of the government's balanced budget, and that has been amplified by his successor, uh, Frydenberg. And for years, we've argued that that goal um, of creating fiscal space was super crucial for cushioning Australia when the next crisis materialized. And lo and behold, the crisis arrived in February. And the IMF and OECD have both noted that Australia is one of the few countries on the planet that can roll out powerful fiscal policy guns to beat back the virus. And Freidenberg has latched onto this, um, stating, quote, the OECD has singled out Australia and Germany as the two countries that have the fiscal flexibility to respond to the crisis without endangering their debt sustainability. And while investors have dumped bank stocks, I've got to say these two big to fail behemoths are absolutely fine. They uh, uniquely benefit from, as we noted earlier, government guaranteed deposits, access to the RBA's priceless emergency lending or liquidity facilities, and they have implicitly government guaranteed senior bonds with prized AA minus credit ratings that can't be bailed into equity in a crisis by APRA. Although the banks recognise the RBA's cuts will temporarily crimp their margins, the major bank CEOs that uh, I've spoken to appear genuinely pleased to be doing their part to support Team Australia. And it's probably actually one of the first real examples of their so-called social licence in action. There are also subtle silver linings. The RBA's cut will help bolster the bank's biggest asset, their residential uh, mortgages, by reducing the arrears rates on these loans, boosting collateral values, and enhancing future balance sheet growth. Markets currently think there's a 94% chance the RBA will cut rates in April. And in the meantime, we'll see the Fed, ECB, and BOE all hold meetings in mid-March. And I would expect to see a coordinated round of liquidity boosting QE, um, which would help crush the extreme virus induced volatility, which is destroying animal spirits and consumer and business sentiment. While the RBA might end up hitting its effective lower bound of 0.25% in April, um, which I think is definitely the central case. So I agree with uh, market pricing. It still has a massive arsenal of firepower at its disposal to help bridge the economic and liquidity gap between now and the mass distribution of antiviral drugs and vaccines. And this obviously includes its own unique form of QE, which as the AFR's star reporter John Keogh has surmised, might involve announcing a specific yield target for long-term government bonds. And those bonds, or more specifically, the yield on those bonds represent the market's best guess of where the future cash rate will be, plus a few other factors um, that include the compensation for future interest rate risk, which is technically known as the um, so-called term premium. If the RBA cuts and embarks on QE of this kind, it will put downward pressure on the exchange rate, and that will help uh, affected industries, including tourism, education, exporters, and other import uh, competing sectors. It will also keep the government's cost of borrowing low, supporting its fiscal stimulus, and I'd expect to see a multi-billion dollar stimulus package announced by SCOMO and JFRI uh, in the next few days. At the limit, the RBA and APRA can ultimately control all market-determined borrowing rates if they feel the need to do so through QE. Will they be distorting asset prices? Well, uh, firstly, I think any current rate cuts and QE will largely be targeted at providing support during uh, what will be, in all likelihood, a technical global recession. And these measures, combined with the fiscal stimulus, should be temporary and withdrawn, hopefully in 12 to 24 months' time. But the second point is the RBA has said it wants to get the jobless rate down to 4 to 4.5%. It's currently sitting at 5.3%. It's likely to drift up towards 6%. So they're actually moving away from their employment target. At the same time, inflation is below target. so the The fact of the matter is the RBA has a lot of heavy lifting to do. Good news is they're now going to get some support from fiscal policy, which they've been banging for for uh, some time now.
0: And Chris, you recently wrote that the next financial crisis will be triggered by subprime corporate loans, noting that in Feb, before the coronavirus crisis, a new record had been set for the lowest ever recorded yields on US corporate bonds which meant that it had never been cheaper for firms to borrow money. The flip side is that lenders and investors had never received worse compensation for the risk of companies, not banks, defaulting on their debts at a time when US corporate, not bank, leverage, has climbed to levels that are higher than those observed before the crisis. Tell us more about this.
1: Yeah, sure, for months, actually for years, we've been repeatedly warning that the credit spreads on high yield or sub-investment grade, aka junk corporate, not financial, corporate um, bonds, and even more robustly rated investment grade corporate debt in the US had before the coronavirus crisis struck in February slumped to below the absurdly low levels last observed back in the heady days of 2007, before the GFC struck. Concurrently, we've seen, in a surge in riskier corporate lending so writing last year in the journal of fixed income the legendary debt investor Daniel Zwern and two academics concluded that quote today's triple b corporate bond is yesterday's junk double b bond and they say quote there has been an alarming increase in the number of triple b bonds issued after 2014. The B market is not only more crowded but disconcertingly it is also riskier on a comparable basis by virtue of having more leverage as measured by debt divided by earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortization or EBITDA. Compared with average triple B leverage of two times during the 2008 crisis, Zwern et al. show that this metric has crept up to 3.2 times. And that was according to their last point estimate in 2018. They further cite Morgan Stanley research that finds that if companies were rated on leverage alone, over a quarter of the investment grade bond market would have a high yield or junk rating. And just for those listeners who don't know, basically you're rated investment grade if the bond's rated anywhere from triple B up, so it goes triple B, A, AA, AAA, and you're rated sub investment grade. Or junk or high yield if the bond rating is below triple B. So then you go double B, B, triple C, and so on. So the increase in leverage in the US, and I am talking about the US market, not the Australian market, has coincided with a boom in riskier private debt and leveraged loan lending to mid market or kind of uh, mid sized businesses that can't access the cheaper investment grade or bank intermediated finance sectors. Drawing parallels with the 2008 cataclysm, Zwern argue that, quote, a leverage loan and a subprime mortgage share common features. And they say, quote, a subprime mortgage is created for individuals with poor credit in the same way that a leverage loan is created for corporations with poor credit ratings. And according to S&P, a leverage loan is typically for borrowers with low or junk credit ratings of double B or less, or any loan that has a borrowing rate of at least cash plus 125 basis points and no current credit rating. In the US, there's been a sharp increase in this type of subprime corporate lending and covenant light loans akin to mortgages written with relaxed lending standards in prior to the 2008 crisis. And Zwirn say, quote, it is reasonable to think of pre-crisis subprime mortgages as leverage loans because the customers for both are weak borrowers with poor to no credit ratings. And they continue, The greatest danger leverage poses is its ability to amplify otherwise small levels of uneasiness in the system which can trigger a systematic shock. This happened in the subprime market in the past and it can happen in the corporate credit market now. With economic downturns occurring on a dependable cycle, it is only a matter of time before we witness and suffer the consequences of an overleveraged credit market explosion. So this should give pause, I reckon, to those retail and insta investors falling over themselves to buy high yield debt originated in the U.S. and Europe. On our estimates in January two thousand and twenty, credit spreads paid to both triple uh, B and double B rated corporate bonds in the U.S. were about twenty to thirty basis points below their previous all time historic tights recorded in two thousand and seven. Now it's really fundamental to understand that this contrasts quite spectacularly with the credit spreads on bank-issued um, bonds. So if we take senior bonds, they are currently trading as much as nine to 10 times wider in spread terms than what investors earned in 2007, despite the fact that banks have radically delevered their balance sheets. So CBA would issue a five-year senior bond in 07, and they would pay a credit spread of about nine basis points above bank bills. Today, they probably have to pay about 90 basis points above bank bills. Back in 2007, CBA reported a common equity Tier one capital ratio of just 4.7%. Today, that ratio has jumped to about 12.2%. Put differently, CBA's risk-weighted leverage has shrunk from about 21 times in 07 to about eight times today. CBAs also dramatically de-risked uh, its broader business model. This deleveraging, combined with a huge increase in commercial risk aversion, reinforced by a massive re-regulation of the banks, has affected a long overdue transfer of wealth up the capital structure from bank shareholders to their historically maligned uh, depositors and creditors.
0: Yes, Chris, and arguably Australia's smartest politician, Dr Andrew Lee, touched on similar themes in an important speech a couple of weeks ago where he made the case that The Australian economy is in a deep-seated malaise. Lee referenced research by the Commonwealth Treasury's Dan Andrews that confirmed our own quantitative analysis at Kulabar, documenting the rise of zombie companies in Australia. Zombies are defined as those firms committing more than 100% of their earnings to repay the interest on their debts. Our latest numbers suggest that about 15% of all ASX companies meet this criterion, up from less than 10 percent in 2010. Andrews and his co-author David Hansel find that the speed with which high productivity companies expand and low productivity businesses contract has been slowing over time with this dysfunction especially evident since 2009. The Treasury economists also present evidence that low productivity incumbent firms are increasingly likely to survive and conclude that the rising influence of zombie-like companies accounts for about one quarter of the slowdown in overall productivity growth since 2012. And since high-productivity firms pay higher wages, the zombification of industry provides a new insight into why aggregate wage growth over recent years has been weaker than expected. In his speech, Lee highlighted the related problems of poor productivity – low levels of investment in new technologies, or anything for that matter as firms cut back on R&D, weak collaboration within businesses and between industry and universities on innovation, a dearth of new startups and associated job switching, and excessively concentrated industry structures dominated by monopolies that thwart innovation and disruptive change. Now, Chris, I wanna finish with a different topic. We're getting a lot of questions from investors about whether you're still bullish on housing. Would you like to elaborate?
1: Yeah, Yingers, I'm absolutely still bullish on housing. I think the coronavirus crisis could suck the wind out of the sales a little bit in terms of momentum. But when you look at the brain damage folks will have from the equity volatility we're observing right now, watching their super balances uh, free for housing looks like a bastion of relative stability. And the boom is absolutely tracking uh, more or less exactly as we predicted. and based on the RBA's own model of housing dynamics, I think we should be penciling in total capital gains of about 25% this cycle possibly a bit more. And this has pretty important ramifications for portfolio construction. Some listeners might remember that when Aussie house prices were still in free fall back in April 2019, we very controversially forecast that the record 10 to 11% housing bust would be promptly superseded by a sharp 10% rebound. Now, we actually uh, predicted the bust itself in April 2017 when house prices were still rising during that long boom that we'd called between 2013 and 2017. To the best of my knowledge, No other investors shared this central case in April 2019 that uh, we'd get this rapid recovery. Indeed, I remember PIMCO arguing, I think it was in October 2018, that the major bank's senior bonds would be downgraded from AA minus to A plus on the basis of their view that the housing correction would continue for another two years. So the housing correction actually finished about six months later in June 19, and then we got exactly what we expected, which was a sharp 10 to 11% increase in national prices. Our April 19, our forecast was based on the assumption of two immediate RBA cash rate cuts, which we thought would push up home values 10% in the next year. Martin Place duly delivered in June and July 2019. And then they actually poured more fuel on the flames with a third cut that year in October, and they've added to that with a fourth cut this year in March 2020 and the RBA has made it very clear to borrowers that it wants them to believe that these rates will remain low for long, which is important in terms of the house price modeling and whether we see a big jump in prices. According to a March 2019 paper published by two RBA economists, they say or they found using that housing dynamics model that a percentage point or a 100 bips drop in the expected real mortgage rate would boost house prices by 28% in the long run. And we've had about 91 basis points of pass-through from the first 100 bips of cuts from the RBA. And so that implies that home values need to increase by at least 25% this cycle uh, if those changes in rates are perceived to be permanent. And if the RBA really wants to hit its legislated full employment target, as I mentioned before, and boost wage growth back to historical trend, it's going to need to shunt rates a lot lower than the current level, notwithstanding its effective lower bound at uh, 25 basis points, which, as we mentioned, the market expects it to hit in April. As I've explained before in prior podcasts, getting the jobless rate to between four and 4.5% is gonna require a large amount of additional monetary stimulus, and this could easily push up house prices 30% this cycle above their June 2019 trough. When Aussie house prices did roll over in 2017 along our projected 10% drawdown trajectory, we completely exited about $400 million of RMBS, or Residential Mortgage Backed Securities, on the basis that their credit spreads would be forced wider given rapidly rising leverage and mortgage defaults. At the time, S&P's RMBS index, sorry, uh, default index, signaled that the arrears rates were actually tracking sideways in a very benign fashion. This was uh, very inconsistent with our intelligence that suggested defaults were going up as a result of higher mortgage rates flying from APRA's macro prudential constraints on lending coupled with tougher refinancing conditions as banks tightened credit criteria, including reducing maximum loan to value ratios. Our hypothesis was that the record volumes of new RMBS bond issuance were flooding S&P's index data with clean, that is default free home loan portfolios because every new issue has to be default free. And that was in turn artificially suppressing the S&P index's default rate, when the true system-wide or Aussie default rate was actually trending higher. Here, as a little aside, S&P erroneously distinguishes between you know quote-unquote arrears and defaults. And they're actually exactly the same thing because when you miss a mortgage repayment, you are technically in legal default, even though S&P assumes that when you do so, that's not a default. So I'd just like to clarify that point. I asked my team at the time to build the world's first compositionally adjusted RMBS arrears index. And that uses a multi-factor regression model to control for a range of portfolio biases that can spuriously or incorrectly influence reported arrears rates. These variables include the time since the RMBS bond was issued, the loan-to-value ratio of the mortgages in the bond pool, the weighted average life of those loans, and their geographic location. Our hedonic RMBS default index showed that arrears rates in Australia had, as we suspected, been appreciating consistently between 2014 and 2018. Combined with the biggest drop in house prices on record, this did eventually force credit RMBS spreads wider in 2018 and early 2019. On the back of our view in 2019 that the bust would be quickly replaced with another boom, which alongside uh, lower mortgage rates would help normalize arrears, we waded back into the RMBS market buying about $756 million of RMBS, a product that was rated AAA. And we can actually now see, interestingly, Yingers, via our hedonic real-time RMBS arrears index that mortgage default rates have flatlined after the RBA rate cuts. And that follows four years of those arrears consistently increasing. And the latest data are actually hinting at the possibility that Aussie home loan default rates might start falling. So yeah, in closing guys, thanks for listening. To summarize our views on the coronavirus crisis, I think much hinges on when we get the first uh, effective antiviral drugs. Our expectation is the next three to six months. I'd be watching in particular the Gilead Sciences drug that has been quite impactful with patients suffering from SARS and MERS and everyone is crowing about the results of the human trials that we would expect in March and April. And we obviously also wanna know uh, what the central banks are gonna do. We're expecting some form of QE in mid-March from the BOE, ECB, and Fed, and further rate cuts from those organizations, particularly the Fed and the Bank of England. It's not clear whether the ECB will cut. They just may ramp up their direct lending to banks and businesses and further expand their QE. I would expect the RBA to cut in April and then also launch its own QE program. And the question is, is this enough to satisfy markets? do the central bank shock and all, or do they underwhelm? We saw with the Fed in February that they very much uh, underwhelmed. Actually, I think technically that was in March, right at the start of the month, with that 50 basis point cut from Powell, which had prompted, the expectation that cut had prompted a a dramatic appreciation of 5% gain in US equities. Uh, triggering a 3.5% drop in equities uh, during his uh, very poorly managed press conference that Ying as you very uh, graphically uh, described. So it's really that battle between I think uh, the virus and the central bankers and also whether we move to mitigation as opposed to containment and whether the fatality rates are manageably low such that the fear and trepidation that is ripping through communities uh, starts to dissipate. We have uh, a central case that we are going to get a technical global recession, two quarters of negative GDP growth. Uh, We're actually of the view that the second, third order, and fourth order effects of the virus are probably underestimated. But that has to be obviously counterbalanced against what is likely to be quite a strong uh, fiscal policy response in the form of stimulus. We'll see that here in Australia um, and around the rest of the world. We've already seen governments like Hong Kong announce cash splashes, giving every person in Hong Kong 10,000 Hong Kong dollars. We've also seen today the Japanese announce that they will give all affected SME businesses zero interest loans to help them ride through the crisis. For the short term, um, we expect much more turbulence and volatility, but ultimately, we do believe this will create buying opportunities. Uh, A vaccine will come, and we believe effective antiviral drugs will arrive. There will be a hell of a lot of monetary and fiscal policy stimulus. This is temporary. It's likely to be a six to 12 month shock, but it is temporary. And ultimately, we will probably get a speculative melt up as the uh, economies of the world are left with excess stimulus.
0: This podcast does not provide financial advice, it is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.